Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. It's politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. Now we're going to turn to a Democratic presidential candidate from Texas. No, it's not Beto O'Rourke. My name is Julian Castro, candidate for president. Sure, Beto has been garnering a lot of media attention lately, in part because he's raised so much money. But Julian Castro, whose grandmother immigrated to the U.S. from Mexico and then worked here as a maid and a cook, says he is used to upending people's expectations. I can't think of a single time in my life where I haven't been an underdog. What I'm used to doing is going out there and working hard. You know, I'm going to walk the walk in the campaign, in my vision for the future, in working hard and knocking on doors and getting to those town halls. And I think people will see by the end of it that I can defeat Donald Trump and um, win this nomination. And Julian Castro does have some experience in winning. From 2009 to 2014, he was the mayor of San Antonio. After that, he served as the U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. And even though currently he's polling at about 0 to 2 percent in most national polls, he expects that to change as soon as voters get to know him. Right now, the voters are, are just kind of, you know, I think starting to pay attention to who all of the different candidates are. The biggest impression that a lot of everyday voters get out there is, you know, who are you people? And, you know, let let me sort this out at some point. Uh, Of course, all of us follow these things all the time. But, you know, I've learned already that that's not the case for for most folks. They're going to get there. Um, And it's up to all of us to make sure that people know what we want to do for them. I've always believed that the number one thing you have to do as a candidate is to let somebody know in concrete terms what you would do for them and for their family if you're elected. And that's what I'm going to try and do. In past years, being a person who is not part of Washington, i.e. somebody who's a governor or comes from outside of the Beltway, is considered a big plus. This year, the people who are getting the most attention, though, whether it's Bernie Sanders, Vice President Biden, Senator Elizabeth Warren, of course, are all people who reside within the Beltway. You're one of a handful of people who did not make a career out of being in Washington. Why do you think that kind of message at this point doesn't seem to be breaking through as much as the more high-profile Washington-based candidates? Well, it's early, and I think because they are Washington-based candidates. And you have a New York and uh, D.C. media that, of course, naturally focuses on that. You know this better than I do in terms of the history of the different presidential candidates, whether it was Carter or Clinton in 92 or even Barack Obama. I mean, he was in Washington but very new to it. They didn't start off as the front runner in their races. They started off between 1% and 3 or 5%. Part of that is because there's always a focus at the beginning on those folks that the media are most familiar with. And I'm not saying that's not earned, because I do think, you know, of course, Senator Sanders ran a strong race last time. Uh, Senator Warren uh, has uh, been popular for a while. But there's also this dynamic of the people finding out about other candidates who have not been in the limelight, not been in the spotlight of D.C. And you can see that that's happening now. 
I saw somewhere also recently that you were at a Latino summit in Stanford and said you were going to be announcing a bold new immigration platform. Is there any preview you can give to us about what this is or when you're going to do it? Well, as much as I would love to break news. Come on, uh, break right it. now, I know, I know. Uh, now, let me just say that um, Donald Trump has taken us in completely the wrong direction on immigration. He makes people think that, um, wants people to believe that we have to choose between cruelty, like separating little children from their family, and border security. We don't have to make that choice. Uh, we can be compassionate with the 10 to 11 million undocumented immigrants who are here in the United States and also people who are seeking to become asylees or seeking refugee status. And we can also have border security. And so I'm going to lay out uh, in the next couple of weeks an immigration plan that goes through all of the different ways that we can do that by ensuring that we offer a pathway to citizenship for those undocumented immigrants as long as they have not committed a serious crime that looks at a different way to treat people who are seeking asylum or refugee status than how they're being treated right now at our ports of entry that treats people who have TPS or temporary protected status differently and also, of course, maintains uh, a secure border, which, of course, every nation in the world is concerned about maintaining a secure border. So I'm going to do that in the next uh, couple of weeks, and I think that um, it's going to be a good point of contrast to Donald Trump. He has a very dark vision for the country when it comes to immigration, a wrongheaded vision, and uh, I have a more positive one. Now, you also, like many of your peers who are running for president, you've said that you want to make universal health care a top priority. What exactly does universal health care mean to you? You know, I grew up with a grandmother that had diabetes. And right before she passed away, she had to have one of her feet amputated, which is very common for a lot of diabetics. Mm -hmm. Throughout that whole time, she had Medicare. And you know, that was a real godsend. I want to make sure that Medicare is there for everyone so that everybody can have access to Medicare, that we strengthen the program for the people that have it now, and that we expand it to include everyone. I also believe that if folks... So everyone, have, everyone, it will not be an age-related thing. It will be anybody who wants it can get into it. Can get it, yes. I do yeah. believe, though, if somebody, you know, has a wants to have a private or supplemental plan... I believe that's fine. I'm okay with that. So I believe striking that balance between having Medicare there available for everybody and also for those who are satisfied with what they have, allowing them to have their plan, that strikes a strong balance for our country. Uh, what I don't believe is that um, this administration should tear apart the Affordable Care Act the way that they're doing. Uh, millions of people stand to lose coverage if they continue to tear apart the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, I see in the community that I live in the consequences of that. Texas has the highest rate of uninsured adults, and I believe also children. And, um, you know, that means that illnesses go untreated. It means that people die sooner than they should. And that's unacceptable in the, in the wealthiest nation in the world. And yet in your state of Texas, I want to talk about Texas for a couple minutes. You have two United States senators, both of whom have campaigned actively against Obamacare, have talked about repealing Obamacare. 
So in a state that has incredibly high, as you pointed out, very high uninsurance rates, why isn't Obamacare more popular? Well, I do think that it's a lot more popular than they give it credit for. I mean, we've seen the polling across the country these last couple of years that shows that uh, it's more popular than, you know, any plan that uh, that Republicans have put forward. And mostly that's also because they haven't actually put forward any plan. And we've seen the Affordable Care Act gain in popularity as people recognize that these Republicans don't have anything else to offer. So your question about why is it not more popular or why do these senators oppose it? It's just, to me, it's just uh, empty ideology. And it's one of the reasons that Ted Cruz almost lost his Senate race and that John Cornyn will be very vulnerable in 2020 because they are completely out of step with the majority of Texans and the majority of Americans. Most people don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars waiting just in case they or a member of their family gets sick. They need the kind of health care coverage that the Affordable Care Act provides. And even more so, uh, it would be better if we had a we had Medicare that was available to them. You just mentioned two two points. So let's start with the first. John Cornyn, Republican senator up this year, your brother, congressman, your twin brother, congressman Joaquin Castro, thinking of challenging him. Is that going to happen, you think? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you can break uh, all kinds you, of news today. I know, right? Oh, my brother, uh, my brother would, would never mad. forgive me if yeah. I. Yeah. So, but I will say that it's something that he is serious about in terms of his consideration of it. You know, Joaquin has really done great work um, as a congressman. Most recently, it was his resolution that the Senate voted on, gave fifty-nine votes to to block the declaration of a national emergency by the president. And so this is the first piece of legislation that Trump had to veto. You know, he takes his role seriously. So I have no doubt that if he decides to run, that he can defeat John Cornyn. But um, when he makes a decision, I'm sure that he'll let that out. So can you tell me one more thing? Did he grow out that beard so that people would not confuse him with you? I think he grew out the beard because he finally wanted to be uglier than me. <laughs> he I'm sure you've never used that. You've never people. used that joke yeah. before. He yeah. goes around telling people that I'm a minute uglier than he is, and he had to go prove that he could be uglier than me by actually growing that beard. You don't like the beard? No. You know, he and I can't. It looks uneven. You know, so some guys can grow facial hair mm-hmm. and it looks even. I don't know if he's just, you know, not like shaving grooming it the right it. way. Yeah. Or, yeah, grooming it the right way. You can see that I don't have a beard, so I'm not used to the terminology <laughs> here, right? But uh, it looks uneven, and I hope that he ends up uh, that he ends up shaving it. <laughs> um, you're, you are also, as of right now, the only Latino in the field. When we talk about states that are early up in the process, a couple of those states like Iowa and New Hampshire overwhelmingly white. But as we get into Super Tuesday, the diversity of the states, the, at least the population in those states, really increases. Is that part of your strategy, really looking in in those um, Latino communities, appealing to these voters based on your experience, your background? Well, of course it is. You know, I, I have always believed that the first thing somebody needs to do when they run for office, and especially if they serve in office, is that you have to represent everybody that you're charged with representing. And so uh, I'm very mindful of that. At the same time, um, I do think that there's special 
significance to my candidacy, a resonance within the Latino community, especially because these days a lot of Latinos feel like they're being attacked by Donald Trump in the rhetoric, certainly in his policies. And so there's a, there's a special meaning there. But there's also a lot that gives me hope. Uh, I remember last Father's Day in June, I went down to McAllen, Texas, uh, which is on the border. I was there with some activists who were protesting at the Ursula Processing Center, which was one of these centers where they're separating children from their parents. And at the protest, the people who were there, they were white, they were black, they were Asian American, they were Latino like me and like the children that were being held there. So I, you could see that it wasn't the color of people's skin, but it was the values that everybody shared that compelled them to be there to protest that policy. And I'm going to put my faith in those values and the fact that we can come together even though we're from different backgrounds. I believe that I can do well, not only in Texas and California and these Latino-heavy states, but also in Iowa and New Hampshire. Secretary Castro, thanks so much for taking this time with us. Thanks a lot, Amy. Appreciate it. So I just learned that my colleague, Tanzina Vega, the Monday through Thursday host of The Takeaway, also interviewed Julian Castro. This was back in 2016 when he was Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. They discussed, among other things, music. And we learned he's a big fan of Jay-Z, Billy Joel, Vicente Fernandez, and John Bon Jovi. That's all for us today. And of course, you can always send a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway.